At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. I want to start this morning with what you might think is a really bold take. Are you guys ready to hear it? Okay, unanimous. All right, well, then I won't won't hesitate at all. I know something about everyone in this room. Well, now it gets interesting, doesn't it? When you hear me say that, you might have one of two reactions, right? You might laugh like many of you did, or you might get anxious, right? You might hear me say, I know something about you, and you laugh. You say, oh, look at this guy. He's funny. He doesn't know anything about my life. I just walked in the door. He couldn't possibly know anything about me. You might hear me say, I know something about you, and you might get really anxious, like, what does he know? Did so-and-so talk to him and tell them or tell him that thing about me? Did he hear me talking to someone else, and what does he know? What does he know about me? You're all just dying to know what I know, aren't you? Well, what I know is this, you don't know yourself as good as you think you do. You don't, and I don't, none of us do. Think about it this way, this morning, when I got up this morning, I I, uh, got ready for church, and I went into the bathroom and looked in the mirror, but I didn't spend much time there. That wasn't supposed to be funny. (laughs) But I know what I look like, right, so I don't really pay close attention. I just do what I have to do and I move on. Now, I'm not going to embarrass any of you by calling on you and asking you how much time you spend in the mirror, but my point is simple. We're not all that good at seeing ourselves for who we truly are. We don't know ourselves as good as we think we do. In other words, you and I lack self-awareness. See, research on self-awareness is some of the most consistent research you're going to find. I was stunned to see study after study yield the same results. And that is that most people lack self-awareness altogether. In a recent study, psychologist and author Tasha Uric found that 95% of people believe they are self-aware. It's a big percentage. When the real number is 12 to 15 percent, to some degree, have self-awareness. So on a good day, I'm glad you're sitting down, this is going to be pretty shocking for you to hear. On a good day, more than 80 percent of people are lying about themselves to themselves. So if on a good day, more than 80 percent of people are deceived about who they truly are, what's the number on a normal day? How about what's the number on a bad day? 
I think what this shows us is that the power of sin on the human mind is pretty strong. Theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. See, our mind is the part of us that perceives who we are. It perceives others. It perceives the world around us. And God has given us, right? Human beings are designed with a God-given ability to consider ourselves, to consider others, to evaluate, to discern, to reason. And for the believer who is trusting in Christ alone for salvation, trusting in his perfect obedience, trusting in his work and no work of their own, God has redeemed you. That includes your mind. Right? Our mind as believers is being transformed by the Spirit. But the noetic effect of sin still is there to a certain degree in God's people. Still present. And so at times... Truth can be obscured to us. It can be hard to discern. Psalm 19 tells it to us very plainly. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So do you know your errors? Do you know yourself good enough to know where your sinful tendencies are? Or has self-confidence blinded you from having an accurate picture of who you are? If God were to break into this room, break into the chaos and the white noise of your life and to tell you a sin that you need to repent of, how would you respond to him? See, sin touches every part of us. And as a result, every part of us is affected. See, sin is like a a big barrel of toxic waste dumped at the headwaters of a river, that river being our life. Everything downstream is affected. Our minds have been corrupted. Our thoughts, our motives have been corrupted. The damage of sin really spares nothing about us. We really don't know ourselves. We don't see ourselves accurately. See, the plight of humanity, whatever we see out in the world or see in ourselves, it's not a freak accident. It's not a result of unprecedented stress or a lack of resources. If we only had that, things would be better. Humanity's problem can be summed up in a simple sentence We are sinners. Sin has put humanity in a situation of dire need, the need for God's mercy. And as you open up the Bible, book after book, this is plain to see. There is this thread that runs through Scripture that the writer knows, and he expects his reader to know that they are both sinners. But there's a bigger thread. A more profound thread than our sin is that God is the giver of mercy. That is the more profound thread in Scripture. And so if God is the giver of mercy, if we know that to be true, then a question should pop up in your mind. How do I receive this mercy? How do I taste and see that God's mercy is the best thing I've ever tasted? Well, that's what we seek to answer today in the second week of our series called Confessions. Last week it was pretty dark, and this week it might be just as dark. We read from 2 Samuel and we got a front row seat 
to David being confronted in his sin. He had an affair with a married woman. And when he found out she was pregnant, he arranged to have her husband killed. And once her husband was dead, David took her to be his wife. I think it's safe to say David's self-awareness was completely absent. It wasn't there. In fact, he was so unaware that he didn't even realize and recognize what he had done even after someone close to him told him a story about him. David didn't know himself as good as he thought he did. You and I saw up close how deceived David really was. But once he was confronted, it was like an internal explosion in his mind. The truth gave way to a self-awareness where he saw himself for who he truly was and what he had done. All he could say was, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the dark backdrop of where we turn now to Psalm 51. And so if you have your Bible, please join me in Psalm 51. We're going to be in verses 1 and 2. If you do not have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin." Let's pray together. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, you, God, have spoken since the beginning of time. In you, O Lord, is true wisdom and no one else. And yet, Father, from the beginning, we have abandoned your word. We have sought our own truth, and it's led to our own ruin. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Grant us the clarity in our hearts our minds and ears, that we need to hear your word. May your word, O Lord, be hidden in our hearts so that we may not sin against you. Help us to abide in Christ, your Son, our living hope. Amen. Well, here in week two of our series, we enter really a unique part of Scripture. The Psalms are really unlike any other book in the Bible. They're like an ancient Jewish songbook of sorts that have prayers and hymns and songs, some of which are themed by praise. Others are themed by laments. But what makes the Psalms beautiful is that it's the one book in the Bible that's written to God himself. And here in Psalm 51, David is crying out for help to God. Last week, we read of that moment where Nathan confronted him in his sin. And to be honest, it looked pretty brief. Nathan confronted him, David confessed, and the story kind of just moved on. But over the remaining four weeks of our series, we'll be immersing ourselves in the words of David's confession here in Psalm 51. And in these first two verses, we can see David didn't move on quickly at all. He stayed in that moment. And so we're going to experience his feelings and his thoughts as he laments his own sin, as he feels the weight of it and the gravity of it. His penitent spirit is brought front and center for you and I to focus on. The self-awareness of his sin causes David to linger in that confrontation. 
Think about that. When you're confronted in your sin, do you look for the nearest exit? Do you look for a way to hide? Do you look for a way to cover it up? Or a way to escape responsibility? What does it look like for you and I to live out the words of 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 51 shows us the answer. See, David doesn't appeal to his many accomplishments. He doesn't appeal to his faithfulness as a child. He doesn't appeal to his legendary skill as a writer or as a musician. He doesn't appeal to his competency as a shepherd. No mention of his great number of victories in battle. Glaring omission of his triumph over the giant Goliath. No mention of the way he honored King Saul, even though Saul tried repeatedly to kill him. See, deep down, David knows that nothing he brings to the table can be used to bargain with God. He has no defense. He's utterly bankrupt before God. Just like us, David can only receive God's mercy by appealing to his character. Appealing to the very character of God. Look back at verse 1. Think David has been confronted in his sin. He, it's out in the open now. He, there's nothing he can do. All the scheming, all of the deceit is all out in the open. And the first thing on his mind is, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David doesn't try to cover up his sin. Nor does he try to hide it. There's no name of someone else that he even tries to blame. There isn't any, hey, I'm good. It was just a minor slip up. He appeals to God's character for mercy. In fact, he mentions two key aspects of God's character that he he is desperate to cling on to. The first is steadfast love. This is an unfailing kind of love, a, a goodness, a kindness even, that's based totally in God himself, in who he is, in the core of his being. And it's used to describe the faithfulness of God's love that he has for his covenant people. This phrase, steadfast love, is mentioned hundreds upon hundreds of times in the Bible about God's love. 125 of those here in the Psalms. That's almost one for every Psalm. And it's the first thing that David appeals to. But second, abundant mercy. David is calling on the greatness of God's compassion here. In our English Bibles, it says abundant, but the word is really about the impressiveness of God's mercy, the massive nature of it, that it's too large to quantify. It overflows in David's mind. See, God has an awareness of the plight of our lives that's uniquely his. He can see you, he can see me in a way that no one else can. And because God is so compassionate in himself, he has a great sympathy for his people, regardless of the way we suffer. 
even if it's self-inflicted, even if it's not, God has great compassion for you. And we've sung of this reality of God's character in our worship. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts, not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So beautiful. So if that's true, if God's mercy is more, how do you and I cultivate a constant awareness of his character? A constant awareness of his mercy that he desires to pour out on us? Well, I think we can look to a biblical example. Before he came to faith in Christ, Paul then called Saul, was an intense persecutor of the church. And on his way to Damascus one day, he encountered Jesus. And everything changed for him. Everything changed. And in his letters, you can see his self-awareness. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 says, he writes this, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul wrote those words 20 years after that Damascus Road encounter. 20 years. Ephesians 3.8 To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul wrote those words eight years after 1 Corinthians. And lastly, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul says, I'm the least apostle. I'm the, the least of all the believers ever. And I'm the worst sinner. Decades after Paul surrenders his life to Christ, he is still thinking of himself as a sinner in need of God's mercy. And he continued to hold that self-awareness up into his own death. You might say, but wait a second, isn't Paul redeemed? Isn't he in Christ? Isn't he saved? Why, why would he be talking like this? Paul isn't teaching shame on himself. As if he's some ancient form of Eeyore walking around, oh, oh, my life is terrible. All doom and gloom. Like he's got a pessimistic view of who he is. That's not at all what's going on here. See, Paul held close together God's incredible grace and mercy and his own personal unworthiness. He held those close together at all times. Theologian Donald Guthrie describes it like this. Paul never deviated from the core truth of the gospel that salvation is intended for sinners. The more he increased his grasp of the magnitude of God's grace, the more that deepened the consciousness of his own sinful state. See, 
See, for the believer that's trusting in Christ alone, God has covered them in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, even though they are still a sinner. But see, there's a danger for every believer. And that danger is that as we continue in our journey of faith, we can forget whose righteousness we have. We can be fooled into thinking that we have a righteousness of our own. Maybe because of the practices of our life. Because we pray a lot, or we read our Bible a lot, or we come to church a lot. All of those important things. But when we rely on ourselves, we become callous to our own sinfulness. We don't see ourselves for who we truly are. See, and right now, I think there's a really dangerous trend in Christianity. There's this dangerous trend to desire, this desire in us to water down our sin. And use words like, oh, I just, I just slipped up. Just had a bad day. Just made a simple mistake, small blunder, let's just move on. This is a grave thing, church. Because when sin isn't all that bad, Jesus isn't all that necessary. And God's holiness is minimized. So what is your view of your sin? Not Uncle John's sin or Aunt Jenny's sin. What is your view of your sin? How do you see yourself in the light of God's grace and his mercy? I think if Paul thought of himself as a sinner for literally the entire time of his life after coming to faith in Christ, then I think we should take note of it here today. See, the key to appealing to God's gracious and merciful character is always keeping in view, always keeping in front of us the reason why we need it. We are sinners. There's another way to receive God's mercy, and that's by appealing to the cleansing power of God. Look back at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. David writes, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." See, David began his prayer by pleading for God's mercy, and now we see why he was doing so. We see the reason. He feels a tremendous weight and the gravity of his own sin. He, quite frankly, understands the nature of his sin, of all sin, really. But let's unpack what he says. David says, blot out my transgressions. This word really shows that David realized he crossed a boundary with God. And it was a serious act of rebellion. And in sinning against God, you and I, we we put ourselves at war with his sovereignty. We quite literally place ourselves and position ourselves as his enemy by crossing him. But David also says, wash me from my iniquity. He sees the depravity of his own nature. There's no good in him. All of his motives are evil. He can't do anything good. He doesn't seek what's good. His motives are corrupt. This is exactly what original sin is all about. Lastly, David says, cleanse me from my sin. 
David knows he's fallen short. He's missed the mark of God's ways. He's missed the mark of God's standards. That's what sin means. To live outside of God's will. See, David clearly sees his sin as a personal failure against God. Each time he says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. He sees this as much deeper than a simple mistake. He's desperate for God to make right what he cannot make right. And in the rest of the psalm, these words are repeated over and over, and each time it's personal. Each time David is wrestling with the gravity of his sin and what he's done to the heart of God. This is important for us to see. Because this psalm, as are the others, are written in a way that's relevant to you and I today. Notice again, there's a glaring omission of many things. Bathsheba's name is not there. Uriah's name is not there. Other people who may have wronged David are not there. None of the details about what we read last week, none of those are there. See, David didn't write this psalm for the purpose of making his own experience public. Rather, David sees his sin as a personal violation against God himself. And so he wrote in a way that would serve you and I. That would serve believers as a model to appeal to God's mercy and cleansing power. Where most of our problems with sin begin is at the point of self-awareness. We don't confess our sins because we really don't believe we're sinners. We don't look at our actions and recognize that they're sinful. And in John's Gospel, chapter 8, there's a moment when Jesus is speaking to Jews who the text tells us actually believe in Jesus. Jesus tells them to abide in his word and they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. But the Jews answered him that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were already free. They've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, you might know that's not true. See, the Jews were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Jesus was showing them that the power of sin holds over us as strong, especially our minds. Sin had so deceived them that they denied something that was a fact about their history. They didn't know themselves as good as they thought they did. And as a result, they saw no need to appeal to the cleansing power of the truth of Christ that Jesus himself was offering to them. Jesus is the only one who can set us free from the bondage of our sin. Only he can right the wrong. Only he can remove the corruption. Only his obedience pardons our rebellion. Only his cleansing power washes the stain of our sin. Is this who you know God to be? Is this who you know yourself to be? A sinner. See, the gospel brings both of those questions together. It's like what Tim Keller once said, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, 
we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. God is the giver of the mercy that you and I need. And he proved it by sending Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.